This is The Widow Podcast and I am Karen Sutton, The Widow Coach. I'll be supporting you through the loss of your life partner so you can find a more positive way through your grief. I want to give you hope after loss and to know that when you are ready, you can create a meaningful life for yourself with the help of me, Karen Sutton and The Widow Podcast. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Widow Podcast. I am delighted to have the lovely Nina Nanart with us today to talk to us about her experience after her husband Steve died. On the 2nd of May 2022 now, Nina Nanart is the arts editor at ITV News and has very kindly agreed to come and share part of her story with us here. So welcome Nina, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for asking me, Karen. When I heard that you um, you spoke to me and you invited me to be on uh, Widow's podcast, I, I literally had a few moments thinking, what? What? You know, I, I just finished reading a book called The Manning Tree Witches, which was set in the 17th century. It was all about the witch hunts and it was full of widows, widow Clark, widow, you know, these kind of people that were accused of being witches. And so in my head, it was a the word widow was associated not with the modern age, strangely. I really had to think about it and think, that's what I am. You know, that was like the first moment of acceptance. Oh, I am actually a widow, you know. So yes. thanks. <laughs> yes, I needed that, actually. No, <laughs> It's a hard realisation to come to, isn't oh, yeah. it? You know, yeah, it, is. it is. It really is. So, yeah. So welcome. So let's start off. Tell us a little bit about, about Steve and, and who he was and how you met. Um, we're totally uh, complete and utter opposites. He's like a Kiwi surf boy. Um, and, um, we met at Machu Picchu in Peru, um, on the trail, on the Inca trail. <laughs> Can you believe? Um, he was, um, he was, he, li- he was from Auckland, originally born in the UK, but the family moved to uh, New Zealand in the sixties. And, um, he was, he was a Kiwi lad raised, you know, a, a, a surfing dude and he was a Kiwi through and through. And, you know, I'll talk about the health issues because they started when he was child, when he was young. But to cut a long story short, his sister married an Englishman and the then the Englishman had a business, needed a bit of help um, and asked Steve to come across to England to help him in the business. So Steve came across and and started working there and then he crisscrossed quite a few times and his ultimate um kind of aim really was to go back home to New Zealand and in that time in between his parents who were both getting quite old decided they would come and live in England because they knew they only had really one big long journey left and they came and were in England so they could be close to their daughter and Steve for a while and Steve had intended to go back home to uh, to New Zealand, and then he met me. Unfortunately, as uh, well, unfortunately for me, at Machu, when we both went on a charity trek to Machu Picchu, I was a patron of a, a Sense International, which is an international deafblind charity, and they kept saying to me, "It'd be great if you did something for us: climb a mountain, go on one of our sponsored bike rides. We can get quite a lot of media out of it." So eventually, I said, "Well, I'll do Machu Picchu," and it was just meant to be, and. I, I met him there and um, totally unlike me, very quiet, very thoughtful, um, very gentle. And, you know, he would joke when we got back that 
there was very little oxygen, obviously, at the top of those mountains and nobody could really talk because they're all gasping for air. And all we could hear was me talking to the to the <laughs> to the guides, you know, oxygen or not. I just did not stop rambling. He was the complete opposite of that, but it just worked. It just completely worked. And I knew on the plane going home, I just like, oh, there he is. That's him. That's him. Did you? That that yep, immediate knowing that he was Absolutely, your person? Absolutely, totally. Yeah. And, and how long ago was that, Nina? 21, 22 years ago, I think it was. Yeah. When I met wow. Him. And you touched on there that he'd been poorly as a, from a child. So when you met him, did you know he had health yes. issues? Yeah. Um, he, he basically, when he was a teenager, he was born with a defect in one of the valves connecting the kidney. It's the kind of thing that these days is picked up very quickly on a scan and very easily corrected. But um, back then it just wasn't. And so the kidney wasn't functioning. And so his body was full of you know, poisons that should have been expelled. Mm. And uh, it came to a head when, you know, his mum always was kept taking him to the doctor saying, he's putting on so much weight, he's not eating, you know, what is going on? But it was only when he collapsed and um, basically nearly died and was kept alive, they, they just said, oh, the kidney doesn't work. And he was put on dialysis in New Zealand. And he was a teenager, you know, in his late teens. And he was on a dialysis machine then for, you know, three and a half years. So he was out of school, college, all the friends were going off and doing whatever, you know, you do, you go to uni or whatever. He missed out on all of that. And he was strapped up to a huge, big machine at his home um, and dialyzing every day. I mean, it was, it, things have progressed since then. It was very primitive. He never complained about it from what I hear, you know, never complained about it, which was also Steve. He just got on with it. And um, then in a small place like New Zealand, I don't know how it happened, but he got a phone call one day and they said, that we've got a kidney for you. And, you know, there really were, there was about, you know, 20,000 sheep and six people living in New Zealand at that time. So um, the chances of him getting a kidney were really quite extraordinary, but he got that kidney and he just said, he he just told himself, I'm keeping this kidney, I'm keeping it. And so within a week he was out of hospital and then he was off with his friends surfing around the world. You know, he was just not, he was one of those people that just wouldn't let his health upsetting but the thing about kidneys is in order to keep that kidney functioning you need to take a huge amount of drugs every single day so when I met Steve in um, 2000 I think it was he was um he every, he had a regime he had a, a, a big pot full of pills and every day would open it and go like that and I'd never seen anything like it in my life but those are the tablets he needed to take to keep the kidney functioning keep him alive so that it was very much you know, very much part of our everyday life. We didn't, we did it without, no, we didn't even notice in a sense that he was taking the tablets. He never mentioned it. He never complained, part of his daily ritual. And that's how we lived. Um, it's quite amazing, isn't it really? Because I think if he'd have had a different outlook on it and and it had been something that really weighed him down and he, he, he made it something more, not more than it was, but more than he did make it, um, that might actually have impacted your decision in terms of if you'd wanted to to spend the rest of your life with him, maybe, because it would have felt like a big thing to take on. But do you think his his outlook and, and yeah. his energy around it rubbed off on you and you were like, oh, it's, it's cool, he's got this, it's fine? To absolutely, totally. Uh, he, he just, you know, he said to me, oh, I had a kidney transplant, I'll take these tablets and he was so matter of fact about it. And I had such a lot of faith and trust in him. And I just thought, well, you know, it's okay by you. It's okay. As long as you're okay, I'm okay. You know, it's not, it's not a big deal. We just, you know, and actually 
it did determine quite a lot of the way that we lived to a certain extent, but it was so worth it. And so I didn't give it a second thought. And I just, I fed off his positive attitude. He was just one of those people because he'd been so close to death. If he, if the, today the sun is shining and he'd have looked out and said, what a fantastic day. And we all say it, don't we? What a fantastic day. But, I, you know, Karen, there was something about when Steve said it, it came from a much deeper place than when I would say it, because he literally was going, this is a fantastic day and I am just here and I'm experienced and I'm enjoying it. And it's as cliche as it sounds that he he lived every day and he loved every day, but he actually did. And I'm not, I'm not really like that. I'm a, I fret and I worry and, you know, about silly, I sweat the small stuff. And he was the exact opposite of that. And that's kind of how we worked. We clashed every now and then, obviously, but he would be always pulling me, anchoring me down. You know, my job is mad and it's full of egos flying around. And, you know, I'd come home and say, you know, I did a three minute piece for news at 10 tonight and they didn't have time and they chopped it down to two minutes. And I was going, how dare they chop down my work of art to two minutes? And you can see him looking at me thinking, Right. Okay. So, uh, so should we do dinner then or something? And it, it, it constantly, you know, brought me down to earth and that's Very, what I yeah. needed, you know? So, and yeah. I, and I fed off that. I learned a lot from him. I learned a hell of a lot from him. It sounds like he's very grounding, which yeah. is just a yeah, love. It's a lovely energy to be around, isn't it? I, I do. I'm, I'm very, how now, obviously Steve is no longer here and, and you are, you know, trying to pave your way forward. Mm. How how are you sort of incorporating these learnings into? Do you see? Mm. We learn from our people, don't we? There's you know, there's so much that I learned from my husband. That I probably didn't appreciate quite so much when he was here, yeah. um, but when he was gone, there's that realization of I've got to do that for myself now. I've got to figure out my way, but I want to bring that forward with me to to honor him, to stay connected to him, to to make his life mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how are, you, are you, have you figured out how to do that yet? Or are you try, still trying to find your way to keep that, that grounded? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I mean, I feel sometimes like my kind of inner, sometimes doubting of myself is so deeply entrenched in me that no matter how much he worked at making that better, I still doubt myself much more than I should do. When I'm talking to someone about that, you know, I, I, but there is, there is, I, I, I kind of feel like the way I was before the manicness of my job and how it was 24 seven. I don't ever, I know now that I don't ever want to, I can't go back to that kind of craziness because you know, maybe it's taken him leaving me um, for me to realise that, you know, it's not the real stuff, is it really? You know, it's not, it's about every day and it is about going out and looking at the sky and going, it is a fantastic day. I'm going to walk the dog today. And, you know, it is about all that stuff. Um, You know, we were gifted, lockdown was a terrible, terrible time for a lot of people. Obviously it was terrible. But in a sense, we always said, Steve and I, that it was a kind of, it was gifted to us because I was forced to stay at home. I couldn't go into the office because obviously we were trying to figure out new ways of broadcasting the news. I would go to an interviewee and then do the interview outside in a car park and then return home. I never went into the office. So I was basically at home 
you know, for the, that year in between working and everything, because he, he'd been on uh, dialysis and he had a new kidney, he'd had a second new kidney at this point. He had to protect himself. He had to absolutely self-isolate and be, not leave the house. We've got a garden and we'd go to the garden, but he couldn't leave the house. But we had, I look back on that, that lockdown and for all, I've never worked so hard in my life. And yet it was, it has some, it was just like a golden time for us because the, the family, we were all together and we'd meet every morning and have coffee together. And I really felt we were, we were given such a lot of time together. And I remember that. And I remember how good it made me feel. And I'm going to, that's what I want to take with me going forward, that the job is really important, but it can gobble you up to pieces like it did with me before. Um, and I got to just be a bit nicer to myself. I've never been very nice to myself, but I need to be a bit nicer to myself now he's not here. I love that, Nina. I think that's a that's a really important message to us all because I think you know that the death of someone so close does give us a completely different outlook on life. We 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 see life through a different lens and and we experience everything differently and we feel different don't we you, you know who we are and and where we fit in the world and, and what fills us up that that all shifts um but to take those things forward with us to listen to i guess to those understandings those learnings those experiences and and how they made us feel and think about how we can bring more of that into our life so that what we create moving forward feels meaningful as well and we're not just sort of trying to to carry on as as yeah. we were yeah. in, a, in a life that might no longer fit so what what happened with Stephen you, you said he'd had another um so he he's transplant he had this kidney this first kidney in New Zealand and it lasted for 35 years and was almost a world record a single donated kidney that lasted that long but we knew when we lived when we were in London um we knew we were told by the hospital that his kidney had started dying. And that's a really terrible thing to learn. And I, I remember him very clearly telling me in the kitchen. And um, and then shortly after that, my father died. And so it was, it was a very difficult time for us. And then we kind of felt like, let's find a way of keeping your, your kidney going because there is dialysis and there is transplants, but nothing is as good as the kidneys that you have. He had one kidney transplant when he was younger. So you only really need one kidney to survive on. And that was the one that was naturally dying. So we just decided that we'd leave London and move to Norfolk. We'd been coming to Norfolk quite a lot and we loved the beach here and Steve being a Kiwi absolutely fell in love with it. And we bought a caravan where all our friends had this battered old caravan on a beach and on the Norfolk coast. Um, and we fell in love with it and we just decided to de-stress life. I suppose that's what it is. And to pack up, you know, bear in mind, I work in central London, to pack up and we moved to Norfolk, we moved to Norwich. Um, so I was on a train line. And um, and the kidney that we'd been told was really dying, rapidly dying. It you know it lived for another six years. Um, so because we we took a lot of the stress went out of life. Obviously, the stress multiplied slightly for me because I became a commuter and had to stay in London two or three nights a week. Um, but for him, you know, it was just a a really peaceful way of living and we got to go and walk on sand and look at big skies every single weekend and that was good for him and it was good for me as well mm. so it was a really you know everyone was in my life was saying well you've moved to Norfolk you know my god you know like not the end of the world though sometimes it feels like that um you know it's it's it is there is it is on a train line trains come here and everything so um and we didn't regret it and then eventually when that kidney 
the kidney did die and he had to go back on dialysis, which, you know, was one of only perhaps two occasions when I've seen Steve cry because he hated that dialysis is, is really hard work and he hated dialysis. And so we had to go on to dialysis, but then he was saying, well, you know, the nurse is coming over to, we're talking about different ways I can dialyze. I'm not going to use the machine. I'm going to use peritoneal dialysis that goes into the stomach and blah, blah. And he was so positive. The nurse came around and, you know, and we had a lovely chat. She met our daughter. We worked out how we we're going to do the dialysis and everything. And then the equipment every month, a, a massive lorry would come down our drive. I mean, a huge lorry just down to the bottom of the clothes. And he'd unload about, you know, boxes and boxes and boxes of this special solution that Stephen had to dialyze with. So basically the solution went into a pipe in his stomach and what should have been expelled by the kidney went down into a bag on the floor. So Steve put hooks all the way around the house so that when we were having dinner, if he was dialyzing, he could sit with us watching TV, up in the bathroom, up in the bedroom. We have hooks. We've still got them everywhere just to make it part of the family normal family life. And Mimi and I would go and collect his bags and warm them up for him. And it was part of our daily routine. But, you know, it, dialysis is, is, is hard. And he, he was ill through quite a lot of it. And that was another three years. Um, and then he, he got the phone call. I was at work in London. He got the phone call to say, we've got you a kidney. And he, you know, he went and he got this kidney and we had a few scares again. And, um, and then the kidney you know, it started working fine, but he definitely slowed down quite a lot, but he went back to work. And the trouble is that some of the tablets that are given to you to keep the kidney going, um, anti-rejection uh, tablets, uh, one of the side effects is skin cancer. And every year Stephen would go and they would take, boy, you know, sort of spots and things off his back and burn them off. And it was a bit slow over lockdown and they got bigger and bigger. And so they started taking off lumps out of his shoulder. I mean, huge lumps out of his shoulder. Like they were like canyons in his shoulder. Um, and Mimi and I would change his dressings for him. And um, but the 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 skin cancer had gone to his ear. And after his last birthday uh, last year, the day after his birthday, he had to go to hospital have his ear removed. Um, yeah. So and that was really very traumatic. And then he came back and Mimi and I would dress the hole in his head, whatever. And he was saying, oh, I've been looking online. You can get, there's plastic surgery and get all these ears put on and that's Steve. And so we go, no, that's okay. I carried on working. I went to the Oscars. He came to pick me up from the station as usual. Um, and then he just started slowing down a bit. You know, my birthday in March, he organized a big surprise birthday for me. And as always, and, um, yeah, he just started slowing down. Then he had to go in for radiotherapy and and it, the radiotherapy didn't work properly. And, and it was very, very sudden, the end, very sudden, very unexpected and really very traumatic, very traumatic and very awful, awful. Yeah, so. Yeah, so, so difficult to go through all that as a family. Did you, did you and Steve talk about the end? No. Never. We didn't. We didn't because his he had such um he had such a positive attitude, and I I think I've worked out that this positive attitude almost like um don't open the box, don't don't reveal that. Let's let's go on this level. Let's not go any deeper. 
that's what kept him alive. And some of his friends would say that to me, you know, he's got a very unique attitude to all his health. I mean, he had a, a number of health issues, which I won't bore you with, but I mean, we were close to the edge a few times um, over the years. I mean, hard. Um, and he, we just, we didn't realise what was, well, we didn't realise, we had no idea because he'd been in hospital so many times and come back out again. You don't know that on this occasion when he's going to go in and he's not going to come out again. So no, we, we never did. We never did. I, I kind of knew, um, I didn't know he was going to die, but I knew exactly what I needed to do. But I don't know why, because we'd been to, we'd been to a friend's funeral in this wood where, and it was the most beautiful thing, funeral in the middle of a wood. And he'd said, this is, oh yeah, this is where I'd have my funeral. So yeah, this is where I would, apropos nothing, and in a wicker casket. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And you know, all those things, but, but no, we never did. We never, he just didn't want to go there. And the hospital called me back in, you know, two months later, his consultant called me in and they just said, um, we, we think where well, they told me, you know, shortly after he died that, that, that they said I had trauma, PTSD, because it was very traumatic. And, um, they called me back into the hospital and they said, we think, you know, we thought you would have a million questions and we want to explain to you why it ended the way it ended and stuff. So, and that was a really very traumatically hideous meeting, but I'm really glad they did it. But it made me realize there was nothing that anyone could have done because this cancer was rampaging into his brain, unstoppable. And the pain was hideous because pain in, in the head and the brain is something that the medical world hasn't quite got on top of yet. So they explained all that to me. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I just, I've just been left with not being ready. I suppose that's the thing we just weren't ready for it. And, you know, the house, the minute, you know, I phoned up home when I knew the day before he went, you know, that they said, well, we think he's dying. I was like, we were like, what? And then suddenly family rushed up and everything. And the house was full of family. And we were sort of walking around like zombies for five months, people coming from Australia, from Canada. My family came, my brother was over from Canada within a couple of days. I mean, I, I can't believe how much love and support we've had. I mean, it's been the most astonishing thing in that sense that's ever happened to us. It's been unbelievable, the amount of love. And we were cushioned from it all, you know, I, I, we just cushioned from it all. And my daughter wouldn't cry for ages and ages and ages. And um, and I think I just walked around like this, going from this person to that person. I didn't cook any food for four months because people were coming here and cooking for us and feeding us and giving us stuff to drink. And I was being, it's like I was being led. I was being led around all the time. I just can't describe it. And the difficult thing is now because I, that numbness is gone. It's absolutely gone. We got home from Canada and crashed because I, I realized we've, we've lost that bubble now with the bubbles gone and actually all we're left with is the hideous reality of it, you know. Yeah, and it's so it is, and and I think that's uh, that's a huge part of this journey, isn't it? The nothing prepares you for for the moment that your person leaves this earth, and you're right. I think we need to be wrapped in love mm. and support, and and that community spirit. You know, it's so hard to do on your own. And I love that you've had that. It sounds like, you know, you are all very dearly loved and cherished oh, yeah, and, absolutely. and supported, which is lovely. And then there's the, that element, you're right, the, the shock, the yeah. numbness, 
um, that that almost it's almost like the body knows what you're able to 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 take on, and it protects you from so much, doesn't it? And it kind of goes right. You can't deal with it all right now. I'm just going to yeah. drip feed you what you can handle, and it does. And you you find your way, and and people support you. But there there is a point, isn't there, where you start to notice that that numbness softening and the reality of your situation starts to, to really hit home and and the the finality of it of the fact that that person has actually got that's really hard for us to, to wrap our heads around isn't it which kind of baffles me in a lot of respects because we've been dying for forever um yeah. like it, this isn't news to us is it and, yeah. and and I know it's because it's it's attached to love and, and we love people um but I I do sometimes go why are we not better equipped to deal with this but you're we're so not right. you're, you're absolutely so right you know when Steve died, Gregory Doran, who's the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company, who I knew and he was he's a lovely man, and he wrote me an email when Steve died, and he took all these quotes out of, you know, various Shakespeare. It was the most beautiful email of support I'd ever had, and said, "Why don't you come up to Stratford and come and have a chat?" And Mimi and I did go to Stratford, and we sat down with Greg, and we both said exactly the same thing that death. It's like a big fat secret. It's like it's like menopause used to be, for God's sake, you know. It's, do you know what I mean? It's like, we never, ever talk about death. And he said he discovered it as well. And I said, there's got to be something to this, you know. And he he knew that when his partner was going to die, because he was um, his partner was Anthony Cher and they were married. And But Anthony, they knew what time they had left and everything. So they talked about it. But Greg said it was like being in a world where it must not be spoken or something. And, and that's what I found as well. But I think, you know, people have been brilliant at coming forward and things, but... People have not really known a lot of time what to do. We're, we're kind of different, um, and our Indian Indian kind of background and Asian background is that. I, and I don't know what the roots of this is. Is that you know, my like death. The notion of death is not something we don't talk about. It was always kind of you know we always just think, oh God, Mum's so melodramatic. Here she goes again. But it's just something that is talked about. When my dad passed away, all of our relatives arrived at our front door, came in and bawled their eyes out nonstop and bawled their eyes out with mum and all the women were going, oh, you know, no, there was no kind of, you know, trying to make her feel better, but it was just like, we are devastated, let it all out. And mum just cried and cried and they, everyone cried and cried. And I remember me and my sister being in the kitchen going, oh, for God's sake, because we weren't used to it. You were like, you know, we Indian, yeah, but very westernised girls going, Gee, what the hell is this? What, what this is? I listen to them wailing for God's sake, and we didn't appreciate this was a cultural thing, and it's like getting it all out. And I see the value in that now. I see the value in just letting rip, talking about death. Except this is death; it's flipping horrible, mm. and we're not going to cushion it. We're just going to cry because it's crap. Yeah. And and there's so much to be said for that. It is crap. It's yes. rubbish. It it's is. rubbish and it's going to happen to all of us. Yeah. So it's not a secret, is it? So no. let's talk about ways of preparing for it. The, the way Steve dealt with it, I think he'd faced death so many times during his health battles that he'd figured out a way of operating. And what the consultant said to me, what she had observed from me being in the hospital with all those times, she said, what we all thought and we all thought was incredible was how well you had read him was her words, said you had figured out exactly how he wanted to play it and you were playing it to the book exactly how he wanted it. Now, I was doing it unconsciously, Karen. I had no idea, but they're right. 
I, he wanted to not not approach it, not talk about it. Um, and so I read that and I adapted my own way of living to suit that. And it was spotted by someone externally. You know, the medics were all saying, they all said, oh, that's how well you know each other. You read it and you did it that way, which worked brilliantly for him. It didn't necessarily work brilliantly for me, you know, because what's happened, of course, is that I built up all this scaffolding to deal with a husband that had various illnesses through years and years and years and years. At the same time, I've been doing forging this successful career and being a mum, and I'd built up a very successful support structure where I didn't really talk about it much. No one at work really knew about what I was dealing with at home much. And the way, you know, the my therapist, the way the way she phrased it was in one fell swoop, every bit of the scaffolding fell down. And I and that was the accurate way of putting it, actually, because if you don't talk about these things, the crash is more violent, <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's a really, really good analogy, actually, isn't it? It's a really good way of of looking at it. When you when you reflect back, and obviously you were, you know, so beautifully reading Steve and his needs and 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 doing what he needed. What do you think you needed? What would have helped you? What things do you wish had been said or done that? If if you could go back, and I know we can't, that you you might actually have have done a little bit differently for your needs. I know that's not what Steve wanted, but if you could have met your needs, do you have an idea of what that would have looked like? You know, it, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because people keep saying to me, "If you had known that, you know, you had that short amount of time, would that have been better or worse? Would you have been able to say things?" And I think it might have spoiled the amount of joy we managed to grab out of those last few months. So what I think we said we loved each other every single day. I mean, 17 times a day, I'd ring him from work constantly. You know, there was there was no doubt about that. But I don't know. I just, when he was in his real pain, really, really in agony, you know, I, I did once say to him, Steve, what do you think's going on here? And he said, what do you mean? Straight, he shot me down straight away. So I thought, okay, fine, let's not go there. Um, I think if I'd have let the thought in, I would have ruined the last bit of time he had because all he cared about was me and our daughter. Yeah. And all he cared about was um, keeping us happy. And he did that in his mind by carrying on as normal. And I think that if I took that away from him at the end, that would have that would have been too much for him and i wouldn't have been able to bear it as well so we played it that way until the end so would i have done anything that differently i might have been less impatient with him when he was late for his radiotherapy appointment and the last day he left the house you know i was going come on steve get a move on and you know i beat myself up about that a lot but that was normal i'd normally have said come on shift steve get a move on and but you know it takes on an extra significance doesn't it and I wish I had I wish I'd been a bit nicer <laughs> on that journey but but I was normal we wanted to be he wanted to normal and so I was normal would I yeah. different? I don't I don't know I don't know probably not actually you know that's lovely that's lovely and I think it sounds like Steve was very much maybe trying to protect you as much as himself totally Steve totally Steve yeah yeah which yeah. You know, just is testament to his his love for you, yeah. isn't it? And and giving you that that gift of 
but it's going to be okay without saying it almost because that's how he lived his life and I know it's not okay um, because he died, but almost that message to you of you will you will be okay. You know, yeah. I've I've loved you and and we've had this beautiful love together, but still so hard. And like you say, you know, hindsight's it can be a wonderful thing. It can also be a torturous thing. Um, and and we reflect back and think, oh, I wish I hadn't have done this, and I wish yeah. I hadn't have done that. But I think. From from my point of view, and and I think you know my husband died very suddenly, mm, yes. and you know didn't get to to have the conversations and say the things I wanted to say, which yeah. kind of ate me up for a while. But actually, mm-hmm. what I've discovered and and how I work with a lot of people is is finding the good in your situation. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, there's a lot of things that maybe we wish could have been different or or said something differently or had opportunities, but actually you can't change any of that, can you? And you've, you've got to look at your situation and, and think, right, what is good in it? Okay, I didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't get to say the things I I, I wanted to say. Um, but, you know, there were other parts of it that were, were reassuring to me that I take away and, and choose to focus on, on those things. Yeah. But it's hard. It's hard to navigate, isn't it? It's so hard and, and it leaves us with so many sort of opposing emotions and thoughts and feelings that we just like go and this is the thing with grief isn't it it's it's huge (laughs) and we don't understand it and and I love what you were saying there about your mum when your dad died in that outpouring of emotion that 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 mourning phase of just inviting everyone around and all sitting together in the grief in the pain and nobody's trying to fix anyone or make anything better which is what we tend to do, which is a lovely thing to do. It comes from a, a good place, but actually, yes. if somebody dies, it is. It's shit, and yeah. <laughs> it is. And yeah. and to to sit in that together and and to to mourn somebody and have that outpouring, I think there there's a lot of value in that, rather than us, you know, trying with our you know stiff upper lip and let's get on with yeah. it and it's all going to be okay. Kind yeah, of no, true. So true. Yeah. You know, Steve used to do everything around the house. I mean, he was such a handman. He did everything around everyone's house. You know, if anyone needed anything fixed, he'd be over there. And he did everything around the house. And I never did. I never did a thing. I never had to. And almost the week after he died, everything went wrong in the house. The front door smashed. It banged and it smashed. You know, this, this broke, that broke, the light broke, that fell down. This came off the wall. The handle broke. Everything broke. The car broke. Everything. And I know... I know things just break, don't they? But he always used to keep saying to me, um, you know, do you want to learn how to do this? Do you want to learn how to do that? I was like, nah, nah, I'll put my nails on. That's what you do, you know. Um, And we sort of half jokingly would say that Steve saying, right, you're on your own lady, get on with it. And I've had to learn how to do that stuff. I've managed it all. You know, I've got fantastic friends who come around and help me, but I, I have managed it, you know. And so... And every time I put a picture on the wall or fix a hand, door handle, I literally in my head say, there you go, Stevie, did it. You know, or I go out and do something complicated in the garden. He's a, he was a garden designer, so he knew the stuff. And I'd, and I'd always, I always go, oh, I'm doing it. I'm doing it, you know. So I think there's something to be said in the fact that he, he really wanted us to feel like we're going to be all right. And the best thing that we can do is be all right, you know. Um you know, I haven't managed, I'm cro- slowly getting back to work, but he was really proud of my job. He was really proud of my work. He was always encouraging me to get on with it. And, 
you know, I've had moments of thinking that everything's over, you know, I'll never get back to being, you know, Nina Nan or ITV, it's gone, it's gone. But, I, you know, it hasn't gone. Um, I just feel differently about it, that's all. And, you know, it'd be the worst thing I could possibly do. He'd be devastated if he thought that anything he had done had impacted on me and my work. And that, so I can't let that happen. I can't let it, I'm just being, I'm, I'm doing it slowly, but I can't let that happen. And so I, I just have to get on with it. I just make myself get on with it. It is slow, isn't it? It's really yeah. slow and it's really painful. It takes a lot longer than, than we expect it to, than we want it to. I think, I don't know about you, Nina, but I remember at the beginning after my husband died, I thought, well, in six months, I'll start feeling a lot better. And after a year, you know, I'll, I'll kind of done a year and it, I'll, I'll kind yeah. of have my, my stuff together. And you kind of then working through those time periods and, you mm. know, you get to the end of them and they, you go, oh, actually, this is, I still, this is still really tough and yeah. I'm still feeling pretty rubbish. Yeah. However, it does reveal parts of you that you never knew existed, doesn't it? It kind of brings things to the surface and it brings this steely determination to go, this is awful. And, and I'm, you know, it, my life is forever changed. I'm probably forever changed. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not going to let this destroy me. I'm not going to let this take every ounce of, of joy that I have in, in my life because they wouldn't want that. And mm -hmm. I don't want that. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I've always kind of said, I'm not particularly religious or spiritual, but I like to think that I will see Simon again when my time comes. And I want to tell him an amazing story. You know, I kind of <laughs> want to go, look, yes. this is kind of what we did. And, and you half in, inspired that. And it sounds like you, you have that steely determination to find your way through this in the best way that you can, which isn't easy and it's not quick. What, what helps you to, to achieve that? What's helping you to, to see that out? Because, you know, you say these things, we feel these things, but we have no idea how we're actually going to put that into practice. So have you, have you discovered new ways that, that helps you support that? I think, I mean, I just have to look at our daughter and know, and that is every imperative right there. You know, I I don't have to even overthink it. It is something that I must do. And I want her to, I don't want her to see her mum crumbling to pieces. I mean, and I have over the past few months. I mean, I really have been in a bad place, but I want her to see, you know, we have to teach our children, don't we? And I want her to see me hurting and then returning and getting on with it because I would hope that that was a lesson that she would learn that she would, she and her father were so close, had an extraordinary relationship. And I would, cause I was in London for half the week. Um, and I want her to see that yeah, this is pain and devastation and death is part of the journey of life. Um, and you, you can take, you can decide what you want to do when something like that happens. But the most rewarding thing to do is to just get, get back on with it. And to get and to forge a new kind of future, whatever. And I, I want her to look at me and be proud of me and think, oh, mum's done it, then I'm going to get on with it, you know. And I think that that's really the thing that drives me. And also, you know, I, I like I liked my life. I like my life before I like me. I love my job. I love my friends. And I don't ever, I don't want to lose that. You know, I, I, I love my job so much and i want to get back out there and carry on doing it if i can you know um so that that drives that's driving me forward as well i think it's going to be difficult because he was all such a big part of my working day because i everything i was doing i'd ring up and i'd ring up and ask for advice and stuff and he was always there advising me or whatever and um and so it is going to be it is going to be really really tough but it 
it is something that I want to do. I think I want to do. And I look at my daughter and then I know it's something that I need to do. So, um, you know, and, and sometimes that's that's enough of a reason. And I'm not I can't cop out of this. I can't drop out of this one. No, not happening. I really resonate with that because I, you know, I, I truly believe that that you know we have to model the the behaviour, the values that we want our children to to embrace in life, and and the outlook that we want them to to have looking forward. And much like you say, you, you know, I was determined that my children were not going to become victims. That you know. Bad things happen and more bad things will happen in life because that's that's life. And it's like you just said, it's it's how you choose to respond to those things. And yes, you have to feel the pain and the hurt and, and it's devastating. And, you know, I've never known despair and, and heartache like it. Um, but, you know, with a, with a bit of love, a bit of support, you, you, you find your, your way through it and you do get back up and, and you you pave that way forward because life life is a beautiful gift mm-hmm. and and there's there's a lot out there i think isn't there that that we can take from it if if we allow ourselves but it's hard it's hard when you lose someone you love isn't it to go out and seek the the joy in yeah. life and the you know the accomplishments and the things that feel good to you because there's part of you that goes i can't because my person's dead they're not here yeah. anymore like i can't do that that's really bad has that impacted your thought process yeah, you know i haven't really been out much at all and um but i did go to i had an invitation to an event at a theater and steve and i was we're always going to theater but and i went there and i stood in the queue to go in and i was on my own and i i had a complete wobble i had a complete wobble because he wasn't next to me and um and it, we'd have been we'd have gone to it and then it would have been talking about it afterwards and those kind of events it's like being invited to stuff and sometimes i hear my friends talking about you know we're going on you know john and i have been talking about going on holiday we're going to do this and we're going to do that and of course it's brilliant great go you know wonderful um and and i find it really upsetting because mm-hmm. i feel like Oh, that that's the big chunk that I don't do anymore. That's gone from my life. So um I I, I do I do find that bit I, I I literally do feel like I've lost a limb, that he was such a part of every single thing I did in my life, every decision I made, almost everything I ate, everything I did, it, he was part of that whole decision making process. So I have lost, I feel like I've lost you know, so much more than my husband and my best friend. I don't know, just lost. I literally have lost a part of me and it's trying to figure out, figure out how to compensate for that part of me in a strange sort of way, you know, how to, how am I going to be, you know, without, without that bit of me, what am I going to put in that place? Mm. Um, And it's frightening, you know, it's scary. You know, when I went out and I stood in that queue and I got tearful, I went to the theatre the other night again and I got tearful and I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to keep showing that vulnerability all the time because I feel like, oh, is it weakness and stuff? Get over it. But nothing tastes as good. Nothing's as much fun. It just isn't right now. You know, maybe it will be one day, but, you know. I think that's the reality of of losing a life partner and and I think what maybe isn't understood by by people and why would it be but it's one of the losses that impacts every corner of of your universe because when we experience other losses um 
I think, you know, it's it's spouses and, and children are, are, are the biggest in terms of impact. Um, I'm not saying one's worse than the other, but when we have a, a, a loss outside of, of home, we get to go home. We, we have our, our normal and we have our safe space and, and our family unit. However, when a life partner dies, it's that feeling of I want to go home, but I can't because it's not there anymore. And and it does impact everything, doesn't it? You know, the social side of things that, you know, your your home life, your your career, how you feel, your parenting, your finances, your holidays. It, it's just every corner of your universe. Like you say, nothing tastes the same anymore. Nothing looks the same. Nothing feels the same. And you know, it does feel like part of you has died with them. But what I think is equally as lovely is part of them does live on in you because mm-hmm. you are who you are because of, of Steve and, and the impacts he had on his life. And, and that light will continue to shine through you 100%. But, it, you know, adjusting to that, adjusting to that is the hardest thing. And Parenting is a big one, isn't it? And I know you, you've talked about your daughter, Mimi. She's 18 now, yes. isn't she? Yes. And that's, that's really tough. And I, you know, I know you're, you're very sort of wanting to show her the way, pave the way forward, but it's difficult. How, how is the grief impacting the relationship you two have? Is, is it, is it bringing you closer together or are you doing it differently? It's bringing you closer together. Yeah, you know, we've always been, we're an amazingly close family and we've always been amazingly close. Um, and I think, yeah, definitely, I'd say definitely close together. I mean, I've just returned. She she took me off to, she booked an Airbnb somewhere in Norfolk for the night and she just took me off there yesterday um, to, to just have a bit of an away, away day together. Um, and so we, you know, we, we do spend, you know, we're quite intensely close to each other. And, you know, we do talk to each other a lot more about how we're feeling. She was very closed off at the beginning, but, you know, about her grief, but she's really sort of opened up. She's got a lot of pressure on her with A-levels and what have you this year, but it has brought us closer together. It's brought, it's brought me closer to all my family, actually, my family in Canada that came over here like a shot um, to help us after the funeral. My brother came with the girls, then he went back, then his wife came over separately um, afterwards and Steve's best friend in Australia, she flew over here. It's brought me closer to everyone, actually. And my brilliant friends that I have here, we were always very close, but it's it's a new level of closeness. It's a, it's, an, it's absolutely amazing. That has been the most amazing. My, you know, my, my employers at ITN, I've been absolutely bowled over by their love and warmth and absolute no questions asked support. I'm absolutely gobsmacked. You know, you have to find these things out in the worst possible circumstances, but there's a lot of good stuff to carry us forward that has come out of this. And that is the realisation that we are so not alone. We're so not alone. We have so much love and support around us and friendship and and we're going to be okay. We're just going to be okay. It'd be a different kind of okay, but we're going to be okay. That just speaks volumes to to who you are as a person. I think um, you know you clearly allow that help and support in, and and you reach out for it when you need it, and you let people 
help you carry the the burden of of grief whilst you need it knowing that it's you know it's not going to be forever but right now you you need that support and i love that you know your employers itn are being supportive because that that's not what everybody experiences i think again grief isn't understood in the workplace and and the enormity of it and i think it's amazing that you you have that support and you you know you've deepened those connections with people so just to to sort of end i suppose what's next what are you doing to continue to to support yourself i know you have a a, a counselor which is is hugely helping you in your journey and you're you're dipping your toe back into work but how how do you kind of see you getting through the, the next couple of weeks or months or however far ahead you feel you can look but you know the one thing i i spot dates coming and I pre-planned for them. So Christmas, I knew it was going to be horrendous. Steve loved Christmas. So we went off to Canada to my brother's, um, you know, which which was fantastic, very emotional, but fantastic. Then was Steve's birthday. And um, and then we've got uh, all these little dates coming up and I, and I pre-organized them. And I've realized that I can't have any unknowns ahead of me. I need to have something in booked in on days that are significant to us that are stuff that we've never done before so steve and i you know if we'd went we like my birthday's coming up in march he organizes dinner with loads of my friends in this restaurant here i know i can't do that i know I need to do something completely different and so i've pre-booked something completely different so that's how i'm getting by i'm i'm seeing what's coming down and getting the cushioning up to protect me and mimi before it arrives and so we our minds might be delving into that but actually we're being distracted so because I've got something in, in, the, in the in the in the diary I won't always be able to do this but it's working for us at the moment it's just it's just keeping it at bay like that you know um and so that's how I'll carry on you know what I have to just have to get out there a bit stop saying no and start saying yes as simple as that and I, I'm doing that I, I am doing that I'm I'm saying yeah, I will. I will come out. Yeah, I will. I will come out for coffee. I will go do that. I will go to the theatre. And that is a big step from what I was like, you know, a few months ago. So that's how I'm going to get forward. I will go into work. I will give it a go. Um, I think, you know, getting myself back out there, that is the that is the the strongest thing I can do right now, which is just getting out there. Hard to do because we worry about it going wrong or like you say, showing vulnerabilities and getting upset in it. But actually, how else do we figure it out? And if if we I've got to know, yeah. 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 Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you for coming on and and sharing your story and and Steve with us. It it means so much. I know so much of what you say will resonate with with those listening to us. So I hugely appreciate it and just want to wish you and Mimi so much love moving forwards as you navigate your way through this, this, you know, next chapter, I suppose, of of your life. So thank Thank you. Thank you so much, Carol. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Widow Podcast with me, Karen Sutton. If you would like to be part of a supportive community of people who understand your grief, come and join my free Facebook group, Widowed and Rising, and make sure you tune in to the next episode of The Widow Podcast. Podcast.